0: both from educational standpoint, as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S. with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who was nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid Career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one hour sessions and follow up six months' progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides proscript perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old to participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, CoEnterprise's mission is to motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the already D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Adrian Washington, who is the CEO and founder of Neighborhood Development Company. Adrian is a longtime veteran of the Washington, D.C. market. He's been active for over 30 years in Washington. He started his company actually in 1998, 99, I should say. But he worked for on his own, doing his own developments before that and prior, and also then joined NHP, National Housing Partnership, for a while, learning the industry before starting his own firm. He also was the head of the Anacostia Waterfront Corporation after Andy Altman stepped down and founded it, setting up the development in Southeast and Southwest Washington along the Anacostia River on both sides of the river, primarily obviously near the ballpark and a Navy yard activity, along with cleaning up the waterfront and the crossings themselves. He was a- actively involved in negotiating with Monty Hoffman and Madison Marquette and their turf team to uh, secure the wharf development on the river. He uh, had an interesting background. He grew up in Washington, D.C., went on to Stanford University and uh, Harvard Business School was in management consulting and a training program at IBM and realized that's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to be in the real estate sector after doing the construction activity. So it's an interesting arc coming from growing up in Anacostia on the east side of the river, going to Stanford and Harvard, and then coming back to the city he loves and doing development. So... Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Adrian Washington. Welcome, Adrian. How are you? I'm good. To see you today. How are you? Thank you. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about your current role at Neighborhood Development Corporation. Are you the prime deal maker and strategy leader?
1: Yes, so
2: I'm certainly the strategic leader. Um, it's a neighborhood development company. Just for
0: the
1: company. Okay, guess.
2: got it. So I'm certainly the strategic leader, and am I the I'm deal maker. I mean, I'm one, um, I'm probably first among many. So I'm not okay. the only one, but yes. Mm-hmm. So you were, you set the set the course for the company, basically. Yes. Your
0: business continues to accelerate despite the pandemic with several recent acquisitions and ongoing development projects, which I'd like to delve into later. What impacts either
2: positive or negative has the pandemic had on business? Well, no,
0: I, I like the way you
2: phrase it because it certainly has had both positive and negative impacts. I mean, I think from a deposit perspective, it has increased the need for housing. Housing residential is the primary thing we do, so we've seen dem- more demand both in our rental portfolio, both on the affordable and market rate side, and our for sale. So certainly, I think, and, and I'm not like a you know global economist or anything, but what we've seen is a shift away from people spending on services, so you know restaurants, vacations. Uh, Broadway plays, what have you, and more to its goods. And the primary good people have have valued is housing. So we've seen increased demand for housing. And up to now, it has kept interest rates low. So I think that's been helpful. We're seeing a little bit of change in that more recently. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. And it's freed up, frankly, resources, both from the government, both because of COVID response and also because of what's going on in our society in terms of racial equity. It has freed up both government resources and resources from mission-driven financial institutions. So that's been helpful to our business. I think the impacts have been more on our commercial portfolio, and it's not a big part of our business, but it is a part of our business. And so particularly uh, smaller locally uh, owned businesses that we have in our portfolio, they face a lot of headwinds. Interesting, though, one thing you didn't ask, but I think that was one of the things that we expected to happen, but didn't, we expected to have a lot more trouble with rental collections. And what we, you know, originally when the pandemic first started, we thought people are gonna be out of work, they're gonna be resistant, and and cities have stopped, you know, allowing for evictions. And we thought there'd be this huge amount of non-payment. What we were so pleasantly surprised that it wasn't is that we found the vast bulk of our residents are, you know, they love living where they live. We provide affordable housing, beautiful places to live that are far below market. And what we found is that people really cherish those and they've done everything they can to keep up, and when they can't. Be able to work with them to work out payment plans. So that was kind of the, the Sherlock Holmes dog that did not bark, that was surprising to us.
0: Well, the, It seems to me that the governments
2: reacted pretty favorably to help mm-hmm. people yes. in,
0: in most jurisdictions around here, certainly. That's correct. So they can step up if there's a problem, mm-hmm. I assume. Yes. And there's obviously, the federal government gave us all money yeah. that we didn't expect. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't ask for it, at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, before we get into your business in a lot of depth, tell us a little bit about your origins, and your youth and parental influences. I understand you grew up in Anacostia, D.C. I did, that's right. Talk about your youth and influences, your parents, and how
2: you? I think um, I had, you know, everyone looks back at the youth and they say that was kind of like, you know, you were just there, you're a kid, and so your environment is what it is, and you, and you accepted that. So, I grew up in some areas that people would probably go to nowadays and say, oh, that was pretty rough, but... Didn't feel like rough at the time. It just felt like everyday growing up. And so, what your folks uh, do? My both my parents were government workers. My dad worked for the federal government, and my mom worked for the DC government. She was a librarian at some of the local branches, and so I think she was a huge influence on me—not my like a business career, but just in terms of the importance of education. And reading. You know, yeah, I know. I, I would go, like you know, go see her after school. I was a you know latchkey kid, and I would come home with books and thus I was a big reader when I was young. I'm still a big reader now. I think that was a key influence. Interestingly, neither parent had like a, a business background or certainly not an entrepreneurial background. So I don't know where that came from. I did not get that from one of them any
0: other relatives that had influence on you
2: no really I mean we were uh, a fairly small family both my parents are only children so I didn't have an extensive like uncles and aunts and cousins mm-hmm. and things like that so I don't know maybe it was innate I don't know but it, it didn't come from them did you have friends or
0: did you see other people it's like wow I like what he's doing maybe I should do that or she or whatever you know
2: I don't know where I got the business bug from. I mean, I got it fairly early. Maybe my older brother to extend. because he go. had a, and things are different now. He had a newspaper route, yeah. and I ended up doing the same thing. And, and back then, it wasn't like it is today, where you've got sort of distribution and marketing and all that. You did it all at once. So you were entrepreneur. You, you, you bought your newspapers mm-hmm. from, you know, the Washington Post or whatever at, at a discount. You sold it. So you bought wholesale, you sold retail. But you also do your own marketing. You went, you know, door to door trying to sell subscriptions, and you sure. actually one of the best things about business at twenty minutes that you had to do collections. I mean, you actually every yeah. weekend to go knock on the door and, yeah. and collect money. And so I think that it, it gave me kind of an entrepreneurial sense of you know marketing costs, market, things like that, cool. and it gave me the gumption to go. So your brother door-to-door. brought you into the business. Then? He did. Yes, that's cool. Yeah. So, did you go to the private public school or private school? So I went to DC public schools up until sixth grade, and
0: then I went to
2: a very small private school called Canterbury School from seven to twelve. Was that in the district? That was out. That was south of the district in Maryland.
0: In Maryland, oh, I never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Is it still around?
2: It's not still around. So now that's how small it was. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't make it.
0: <laughs> but uh, that catapulted you on to Stanford University. I understand. So. Yes. Mm-hmm. So talk about. Why Stanford and why leave the area and all that good stuff? You know what? Uh, yes.
2: So, I mean, and I, I contrasted to my kids who were very deliberate and, you know, thinking where they wanted to go to school versus to me at that time, you know, I was just a kid and I wanted to see parts of the world and I want to go somewhere warm. And so I said, I want to go to California. And I had never been to California, the furthest I'd been was kansas city where, like to the mm-hmm. mississippi river so i've sure. never even been to the west coast but you know i just got in my head i wanted to go to california and i had a um very influential guy who was uh my you know high school sports coach and who was also my advisor he said well you know adrian if you want to go to california you should go to stanford no i I'd never heard of stanford and he just said no it's this great place and it's good academics it's beautiful you love it and so Really, literally, just on his recommendation, wow. I applied to Stanford and, and got in. Wow. That's and off I went.
0: Now, were you uh, participating in a sport there? Oh,
2: yeah, I played uh, basketball and football. Oh, did you? Mm-hmm. Intercollegiate then? Oh, no, no, not Stanford. No, no, in high school. So, I was going to say.
0: No. Okay. no, no, i going to no. say. I wish.
2: <laughs> so you're not Wasn't in, good
0: enough for that. So you aren't uh, quite as uh, talented athletically as Jared Lynch. Is no, one. no, <laughs> certainly uh, There are no
2: you know, metals right. in my closet like his. So no. Yeah. Jair followed you, I assume, at Stanford. He wasn't there on the same time. Yeah, I think he's like maybe 10 years younger than me, kind of in
0: that age. Yeah, that's yes, what I, I thought. Uh-huh. And then, so then you went on to, to graduate business school. Was there an interlude between Stanford and Yeah, Stanford? I worked for
2: IBM um, oh, did three you? years out of out of uh, Stanford undergrad. I worked in their, in their sales and marketing division. It was my first job out of college. I didn't really know what to expect and uh, I think it did Enhance my interest in business, but it also sort of showed me that kind of the corporate life was not for me. So I, I think it, it both taught me what I wanted and also showed me what I didn't want. Were you in sales or what? I was in sales, yes. Uh-huh. Did you go through a training program? I did. No, and back then, I don't know how it is today, but back then, the IBM sales training program oh. was thought to be like the, the best. best in the world. Yeah. So. awesome.
0: So in Stanford, do you study business, or what were you studying in Stanford?
2: No, not really. I studied uh, political science, a little bit of economics. So, but no, it was. I thought I was going to law school at the time, and so I was on kind of that sort of classic, you know, pre-law program, and and decided that I wanted to, you know, take a couple of years off from school before I went back to school. And so, as like I said, I went into the corporate world, which I didn't like, but I went into the business world, which I did like. And so, after a couple of years, I'm yeah, like maybe the first year, I said, oh, you know, maybe I'll get a JD MBA. And then in the second year, I said, no, just, you know, I'll hire lawyers for what I need, and I'll do that two-year MBA program. It's much more attractive than a four-year joint program. And, and mm-hmm. One of the so best in, decisions I've ever made.
0: With IBM, were you in, on California? you stay out there? Or you yes, no. Mm-hmm. Um, you, so you're out on the West Coast the whole time. I yeah, did, yeah. So then
2: why Harvard Business School? I wanted to come back. Well, a couple of things. I wanted to go to a top school. I had been to Stanford undergrad, so I thought that didn't. That sounded kind of silly to go to the same place. I wanted to get back east, and so really back then there were like the top four schools. Stanford was one of them. Mm-hmm. I crossed it off the list. Chicago was another one. I didn't want to go to Chicago. I thought it was too cold. And then you <laughs> had you know Warden and Harvard, and, and I remember my. I think one of my you know, mentors at, at IBM had had just really sort of said, oh, I've always wanted to go to Harvard Business School. And so that kind of stuck in my head that that was like the, the name. I don't know if it was like the best school, but it had like the biggest brand name. And so I thought I would affix that to my resume. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to come back east. So it all kind of worked out.
0: So I assume that you were one of the few minorities at Harvard Business School. Right? Well, right? I don't know At a few time. I mean
2: certainly we were in the minority, but I mean it was it was a a small but cohesive community, and I still have friends in it, so I mm-hmm. you know it was it was it wasn't lonely. We were we were small, but we were together. It's a big, it a big school I think it's the largest business school if
0: I'm not mistaken. So you still stay in touch with your Harvard uh, graduate? I do. Components? I have several friends in there that I'm still in touch with. That's great. that's great. So, what influences did you pick up? Obviously, you learned basic business in that. There, uh, mm-hmm. did you have an idea when you came out of
2: Harvard what you wanted to do at that point? Not really, and it certainly it wasn't real estate. I mean, even at at that point in my life, I was in my mid twenties. I, you know, I had no real estate experience. I didn't think I was going to, you know, I didn't know what I didn't even know what a developer was. So, I think it it exposed me to first of all, two years is a great time graduate school it's, it's long enough to really learn something but not so long and it's a slog so I think that was good I got exposed to a lot of things that I didn't know about not having been like a, a pre-business major so like I didn't know accounting and finance and that was something mm-hmm. a lot of you know a lot of my peers were like oh you know I know that I know that and I was like you know I didn't know what you know cap rate was or cost of cap all those things and so I thought that was great learn organizational management which mm-hmm. is something that you know it's been really helpful, not so much for real estate, but for running a company.' It's sure been, been really helpful marketing. I sort of added to my kind of direct sales experience with sort of bigger picture marketing. So it's great. So no I, international business was uh, something that was new to me. So I think unlock, I think I got a lot more out of business school than a lot of students had because a lot of my peers were they had been interns on Wall Street. They had been bankers. They right. had been business adjacent, and so maybe they rounded out their skill set and they learned more. But for me, I was completely green to business outside of a very narrow field. So it was a lot of this stuff was eye opening and fascinating mm-hmm. to me. So, you,
0: as I recall, hearing from other interviews, that it, consulting was your next gig after after business school. Yeah. So, who would you work for there? I
2: worked for a firm that was called Strategic Planning Associates. Mm-hmm. They were a uh, boutique. Consulting, high-level strategy firm. So they—they they were kind of like a boutique McKinsey. At least that's how they—they <laughs> fashioned themselves. They were one of the, the few kind of firms of any kind of like business school destination that was in D.C. I very much wanted to come back to D.C. Mm-hmm. It was my roots. My family was here. I wanted to do that. So it was again one of those experiences that was great training. I enjoyed it, but it also showed me that I didn't want to do that either. So. I left there after three years with like, you know, I don't want to do this. So I was appealing a bunch of stuff. Well, most of your clients, different. government clients? or No, no. These were mostly Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies. Interesting. Um, you know, high level decision making. I think it taught me that sort of general business sense. And also as an associate there, it really taught me rigor. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd had rigor at Harvard, but it was almost like a grad school on top of grad school in that mm-hmm. you... You would do an assignment, and you'd have 100 data points, and you'd have 99% of them right, and you'd walk in, you show your partner, and it's like, oh, data point number 87 is like, should be right there, and you like, like, wow, you know, that level of rigor is both what is important in decision-making, and also it's important in terms of being client-facing and convincing someone that, you know, you can do a, a great job with their money or their projects, and so that kind of rigor, I think, was... It's great training. Did me. you have the, the typical, go to the client, spend a week,
0: travel back and do all that kind of thing? But that, that we the would do see? it all kind of
2: way. depends what a client was. I was lucky. We had some clients who were in Saskatchewan and there you would like go for like a couple of months. Oh, come my back my while, And then go back and, and especially in the wintertime, time. It fun. I was pretty <laughs> lucky. Most of my clients <laughs> were, were in New York. And so... You go up there a couple days and come back, or you could literally go up there and fly up and fly back the next day, or you stay a few days. So that Uh aspect was pretty fun. What didn't you like about it? I didn't like not. There's a couple things. I didn't like the concept of clients, where as a consultant, that you were the product. So if if the client, if you're sitting there on a Friday afternoon, client says, "I want this Monday morning," you're you ask them like, "What time?" You know, it was that kind of thing where you had to show them. And and the clients can almost be a little abusive at times that we're paying these folks a lot of money. And so they would just want instant results. And so I didn't like that aspect. Uh, And I talked about the rigor. I think that was a good exercise for me, but I didn't want to be in the weeds that much. And so, you know, that was not for me. And then I think the final thing was that. I wanted to make decisions and to see the, the results of my decision, hopefully good, maybe bad, but I wanted to be that person who made those decisions and then live with them. As a consultant, mind. you're yeah. making recommendations, yep. but you have no influence whether they get implemented sure. or not. If you had become a lawyer, it would have been the same thing, probably, mm-hmm. more than likely.
0: Because what you just explained uh-huh. is what early lawyers do almost exactly the same. It
2: work round <laughs> the clock,
0: uh-huh. always a response to the client, day or night. You know, it's just, and, and in
2: the weeds, in the weeds.
0: No, you're right, you're right.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. So, where did you get the real estate bug? Then, so completely in an unusual way, while I was doing this consulting work, and then, you know, like you were saying, I would fly out to New York in the morning, and sure, I'd come back in the evening. I bought an old brownstone in an area of D.C. called the Droid Park. Sure, and you know we hired contractors at first, but after a while, started doing a lot of work myself, and so I really fell in love with that process. So I'd get home at seven or eight at night, and I'd be you know up until midnight. Like, Did you stripping. live there at the time? Yeah, there, yeah. Uh-huh. I'd be you know sanding floors and stripping woodwork uh-huh. and doing carpentry, and and so I love that at that point actual hands-on process mm-hmm. of building. I really enjoyed that. We lived in a you know unique neighborhood that had great old architecture, but had a lot of rebuilding going on. It had a diversity. It's of, a historic neighborhood, isn't it's it? It's historic, okay. yeah. Exactly. I mean diversity, all types of people, you know, rich, poor, black, white. All conversation what is the about? story behind the Droid Park? I'm curious. Yeah. Um, the Droid Park was actually one of the first sort of planned suburbs of Washington, D.C. And people would be surprised to see it now because it's just across Florida Avenue. But back right. in those days, Florida actually, Avenue was actually called Boundary Street. And so it was really the, the kind of the, the first kind of suburbs. And the streetcar went that far north. And so this was at the turn of the century, 1890s, 1900s so. And it served as near Howard University. so it was one of the first integrated communities in, in DC in that it served a lot of the, the people, professors and, and more of the, the academic part yeah. from Howard University. So mm-hmm. it, has, it and it has great Victorian architecture and it you know if you go forward into the history of DC, it was one of the areas that was not touched by the riots and it had a decline but it was not so much a decline and got raised. so it has some of the best examples. Victorian architecture in the city. So how did you find the house that you went you bought? And it, it was just I had a real market? estate agent and and well no when I was living in Boston <laughs> during Harvard it was a neighborhood in the back bay where I had some friends oh, and yeah. they lived in sort of the old you know historical architecture outside modern inside. I'd never seen that because I hadn't grown up around that I hadn't yeah. seen that obviously in California. Right. Yeah. I was like, you know, this area and this housing is cool. When I get to D.C., I want to live in a place like that. And so I found a neighborhood like that. That's very cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, there was a woman that I met, I've forgotten her name, that bought a place there, and she just said she just loved it. Mm-hmm. So that's great. So you
2: apparently transitioned to National Housing Partnership
0: at one point, or
2: NHP. Yes. How did that happen? So, again, a long story. So... When I left Strategic Planning Associate to get into housing, Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know a thing. And, you know, one of the things I shouldn't, well, there's no way I could have known it. I started, I left there in 1989, which was many kind of real estate recessions ago was a a crash. And so I left there and just kind of foolishly with no capital and no knowledge went about trying to find other houses like mine and, and restore them and sell them. And I'm like, a lot of people. I didn't do it as a side gig. I just like ah, I hate my job. I'm quick to do that. So mm-hmm. I did that for about four years, and it was a really brutal recession. And you know, I kept going and kept going. And it was it was a it was a down period. It was I was literally like leaving my blood, sweat, and tears, and buildings all you know throughout the city, and you know, would just go deeply into debt, finish one project. You know, either sell it or refinance and did you have know, a banking I, relationship? I did it? have a banking relationship. And uh-huh. I did all right things, but I just, you know, the classic what I know what I advise entrepreneurs now is that everything took longer and cost more. So I would do all this, go deeply into debt, you know, sell the property. You know, once I paid off all my debts, I had like enough for like, you know, a nice dinner, and then I would just go out and do the same thing again. So after about four years, I'm like, okay, you know, this is crazy. Let's do something different. And during that time, I had met a, uh, an official at the HUD who I we were trying to buy some of their surplus inventory. Went nowhere, but this guy re- remembered me. And so he had gone to NHP as a COO, called me up and said, hey, I'm here now. You know, I remember you. We want sort of young, fresh ideas, you know, energy like you guys, young guys like you coming in. I don't know what you're going to do, but would you come in? And this time I was tired and broke. So it was a very attractive offer. So ended up going there, and it was a really good experience. So, is this the
0: same NHP that became Aimco and was merged with them? So exactly, it's the same which company.
2: Is, which is Aimco was what led me to forming the forming NDC. I was oh, really, yeah. No, I was happy at NHP. You know, I wasn't really fulfilled, but it, after struggling for so many years, it was comforting to get a paycheck every two weeks. Mm-hmm. It was fun to learn about real estate and do things with other people's money and not have to worry about borrowing my own or signing my own guarantees. And I had, you know, bosses that I really liked. I had a, a lot of freedom. So I, I was comfortable, but I was still yearning to get back out there. And when AIMCO came, they really, they were trying to execute a neutron a bomb strategy. They wanted all of our properties. They really didn't need our people. They had a machine. And so they got there and they started systematically kind of learning our assets, learning our business, and then they would lay people off. Mm-hmm. And then they'd move to the next department and do the same thing, lay yep. people off. So I could see this wave coming for me. So I, when after the merger happened, I was left, I was in an area of the company that was kind of one of the last ones they got to. And, and, and so I had time to start planning and start thinking about my future. And I said, okay, well, I'm still young enough and hungry enough to get back out there and and be an entrepreneur. So by the time they came to me and and offered me a buy-up, it was like, I was ready. I was great. I was like, thank you very much. It's been good. And I left that and started NDC. So I'm going to mention
0: a few names of people that I remember from them, Mm -hmm. because I almost did a deal with them when I was an intermediary. So I'll mention John Barton. Yes. name ring a bell? Absolutely. remember John, yes.
2: (laughs) Yes. I Mm -hmm. worked with John. Rod Heller. Oh, well, Rod Heller was the, the CEO. Yes. And actually one of my first investors in NDC. Was right? he? Yes. Yeah, so mm-hmm.
0: That's interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then Richard Vincy was all, another fellow that I worked with. I don't okay. Richard, Richard, I don't remember
2: him.
1: No. Okay.
0: So we worked on, I worked on a project called Grosvenor Tower.
2: Mm-hmm. Grovener was the first place I visited. It was their flagship at the time. And mm-hmm. so, you yeah. know, when I first got there, of the first things, oh, go and look at the local portfolio. And So Grosvenor was like the first place I went to. And a guy by the name Dick Dubin, Dubin yes.
0: was the partner mm-hmm. at the time. And so we were working on potentially selling that property. And I brought an institutional investor that I represented. We came very close. I mean, the due diligence period, we were down to the last few days. And then for some reason, and I can't remember who made the decision, mm. we dropped the deal. No and uh, I developed their relationships. And then there mm-hmm. was another fellow named David McDonough also. It was
1: mm-hmm. the name.
2: Yeah. I know the name, but I don't remember him.
0: Sure. Yeah, yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. So you did you learn kind of the affordable housing business while you were there? Is well,
2: that... Interestingly, I didn't. I mean, at the time I yeah. got there, NDC in its prior incarnation was a developer. Right. Or, or more like a development partner. Mm-hmm. The time I got there, they really sort of stopped the development business, and they were a large asset. At the time, they were the largest owner of multi-family country. And my job there was in acquisition. So, you know, my job was to find portfolios and acquire them. So even though they were affordable housing, they weren't so much in the light tech space, which is really kind of the beginning or more, sort of the uh, legacy kind of program to 221 D 3s and fours and project-based section eight things like that. So I understood that aspect of the business, not the light tech side so much, and also, just from the, the point of analyzing existing deals and understanding value, their value and how to purchase it, really didn't learn development at all. So when I went out, I left there and started NDC. I really was picked up where I left off before, which was doing you know very small scale, you know, three unit building, four unit building, gut reaps. Mm-hmm. So now it, NDC taught me something. I mean, NHP taught me some things. About the business, but really I'd say 95% of the skills were not applicable to what I ended up doing here. Interesting. Interesting. So what motivated you? I mean,
0: you knew they had to you saw the writing on the wall, you had to make a move. What motivated you to start your own
2: gig instead of going to join another firm like them or do mm-hmm. something else? At the time? I mean, I always enjoy I always had not trouble fitting into larger organizations, but no passion there. And so, I could just sort of see that when I was at somebody else's you know larger shop and the issues that really got people passionate. I kind of you know I did a professional job and and mm-hmm. I felt responsibility, but I wasn't really excited about it and so I had ideas at that time which were you know interestingly ahead of their time about the 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 value of urban living, the desire for walkability the 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 enjoyment of eclectic and, and classic architecture that was transformed into something modern and working the, the comfort level and interest in, in working in mixed income neighborhoods and so I wanted to build a business around that and I guess if someone had you know come to me and sort of show me something exactly like that not with the group I fit in with then that might have been appealing but it didn't happen I didn't sort of see a place like that where I wanted to join a part of their team. And so I made a decision to essentially form my own team. So if I'm not
0: mistaken, I I moved here in 1985. And in 1987, we had a program with Aetna to invest in Washington, D.C. in special neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. Columbia Columbia Heights. And this was working with the district government and also some local neighborhood groups called WISH. And there were a couple other like that. So we would help acquire these properties and then do major rep, gut rehabs of these properties. Mm-hmm. So, but this was late eighties. I mean, this was pretty cutting edge. I mean, the values in these neighborhoods have probably multiplied.
2: I'm gonna guess five times, four or five times since then, maybe at, at a minimum. At yeah, a minimum. at no, least. I, I remember some of the first gut. Well, there two things changed. One is the price. I remember one of the first gut rehabs I did. And I remember it was, and it was sort of like a, a step up for us. It was a, it's a street called Chapin Street, Columbia Heights. Sure. And it was yeah. a, you know, gutted, burned out building, but it yep. was still, at least the, the masonry was structurally intact and the floors were intact, but it was interesting construction. It, it was, uh, it had like concrete floors. And so it was like only a three story building, but I remember going there and it was 18 units and the guy said he wanted 30,000 unit for it. And he said, and we went in there and it was like, you know, just bombed out, sure. a tree growing in it. Yeah. And he said, Well, when you get in the roof, you'll see the view and you'll know you love it. So right. we go through there and through the cobwebs and the roaches and everything and kind of climb on that to get in the roof. And it was this beautiful sweeping view of the city. And I was like, Okay, I'll take it. And we shook hands. And- Is that your We're first here. deal? That wasn't my first deal, but that was sort of our, when I sort of felt I was getting into like, a multi-family developer, 18 units, you know, it was like, yeah. you know, it was, it was a lot then, but the things were so, so from that period when I started 99 up until 2008, before the crash, two things happened. One was that prices started to go up a little, went up a lot more after that. The other was that DC ran out of vacant buildings. I mean, mm-hmm. when I started, you know, my first little business, when I started in DC for the first, up in, you know, seven or eight years, there were just vacant buildings all around here. I mean, you know, the, we we're sitting here now in a new construction building, but like that, that warehouse went across the street was just vacant. The building I talked to you about was vacant. I mean, there were all kinds of vacant buildings. For the listeners,
0: we're at the corner of Georgia and
2: Lamont. Northwest. And like after like eight or nine years, it was like all the vacant buildings were gone. I mean, things were really booming then and the city was changing and, and the view of urban America was changing. And so... I was like, hmm, I think we need a new business model because we just can't be rehabbers anymore. we got to do new construction. Yeah. It's interesting.
0: When you started your company, Marion Barry was mayor of the District of Columbia, and the city was struggling with the fiscal and social problems that mm-hmm. we had, of course. You know, the Financial Control Board, I think, was, I don't know if at that right. time they were running the city or not, yes. but... And you just said, uh, what what was your strategy in addressing the affordable housing crisis at that time? What was your thought process?
2: Well, I mean, I have to be honest. I mean, I think at that point, both in my life and my career, I wasn't really focused on the affordable housing crisis. I was just trying to make a living. I was trying to make a living. I was trying to make payroll. And I like the transformation process. So I like that. Although, interestingly, in hindsight, there were things we did that were affordable housing just because we were working in neighborhoods and working with people who would take neighborhood risks. So we did condos on Kennedy Street. And I remember we were, just the fact that we bought the building cheap and we did the rehab, Mm -hmm. you know, affordably, we were selling condos like at like 99,000, 110,000. So, you know, that was affordable housing. We just didn't know we were doing affordable housing. We thought we were just transforming
0: buildings. So so these were condos, this is for sale housing. Mm -hmm. Were there cops? I mean, how did you know your pricing at that point? Did you? How did it was you always
2: it was always a risk because we would go to neighborhoods where there wasn't a comp. and so we'd have to extrapolate. And so we'd say, okay, well, you know, we look at a building that was in a nicer part of town, and we'd say, okay, that one, you know, was selling for two hundred thousand, so we could deliver something that was, you know, almost as nice area that wasn't as nice it'd be like a hundred thousand. We were literally just guessing and, and we had to make enough margin to break to get right. money. No, and the, the great thing was the costs were low. I mean the cost to acquire was low. The cost for construction was much lower. I mean we were able to do very decent conversions for you know thirty you know, thousand any prices people would laugh at nowadays. So there were margins there that we made. So it worked out. Were these I vacant guess,
0: buildings you were buying? These were vacant buildings, yes. Yeah, so you had no topa and it was I didn't even know Topa even existed at that time. Did it, it did
2: exist at that time,
0: but these buildings were having been vacant for like
2: years. And so yeah, there was there was nobody there at Fort Topa.
0: You kinda wish it was like that now, don't you?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and I wish I was twenty
0: years younger too. So if you're, if you're one of those things is gonna happen. <laughs> yes. So let's see. You then, after uh, a little bit, you were uh, recruited to join the Anacostia Waterfront Corporation. 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 Yes.
2: Talk about that evolution and why you did that at the time. Well, it was an interesting point. I had been then at NDC for, you know, eight years or so. Someone said was burned out, but it I've gotten to a place where. It had gotten a little bit stale and I was, this is back when people like read newspapers. And so I was really looking, I think it was in the, the post or whatever. And I remember because I was driving through with my wife and I saw that uh, Andy Altman, who had really founded AWC, right. had left. And so I said, you know, this sounds interesting and they're doing this multi-billion dollar thing and it is touching both sides of the Anacostia. And so I had some there and it was really, and I said, hmm, do you think I could something like this and she was like yeah you could do you know as good wives are she was very encouraging and so I said yeah you could do that and I knew a couple of people on the board and I called them and said well I'd be interested in doing this and they were like oh we hadn't even thought of you but that'd be great and so I had really like a, a very whirlwind type of thing and I think they were what they were looking for at the time I think Andy was a great visionary and they were looking for more of a, you know, for, and it's always, he sort of, the pendulum swings back and forth. So I think Andy's vision was a thing that really got AWC from nothing into creation. And they were looking for something, somebody more sort of technocratic, more of a developer background, business background, to sort of take to the next stage. And also, frankly, they wanted someone who could say, hey, I, I grew up in these neighborhoods and, and mm-hmm. you know, I can communicate and relate to the people who are living there. So I think I was the right person at the right time. And in my life, it was the right time for me to say this was a, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity. I'd never been on the government side of the table. I was curious about what was going on there. I had never been to live in a large redevelopment agency and Andy was leaving. And so I'm like, you know, maybe it was fate. And so let me throw my hat in. So
0: you didn't really know what they were doing per se until you were there. In essence, you hadn't been.
2: I'd had read part about of it, in the paper,
0: but, but you no, had, uh, you no, hadn't been know. part of it. No, I had not
2: been part of it. Yeah, yeah.
0: so that's interesting. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but and I'd think back, you were probably the first black-owned developer that I knew in the city. Were there any other companies well, at that time? I mean, I Pam, think Jair Pam Bundy. started.
2: Yeah, Pam, I think yeah, Pam I think Jair started his firm at about the same time as mine, if I recall. I don't know exactly, but I think so at that time, and, and it's funny, there was a group of black developers. There were people who, who were older than me, and there were people kind of in my age. And a lot of those firms, or and there were also people who were sort of real estate development adjacent in that maybe they had other business interests and they would, would come on as partners in some of the deals. And so, no, there were other folks. I think I'm unique in that, except for from that bench, except for me and Jair, I think that we're the only ones who have kind of like been, you know, continuously operating and have gone on to uh, bigger and better things.
0: Well, I remember Pam Bundy was involved in mm-hmm. some deals and her role primarily was to be accommodate some of the law that required minority involvement in large, mm-hmm. primarily district
2: uh, RFP type mm-hmm. structures. Was that was that business of interest to you at all at that time? Well, we did. I mean, we were partners in the old Convention Center, um, City Center. Now, Pam was a part of that deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, Pam, and I are also were partners in uh, City Vista at, uh, at sure. and K. Yeah. So, I think though, Pam and I were examples of folks who did have you know development businesses where we actually were. Sponsors and and lead developers in their own projects, right? But also saw the opportunity to participate in some of these bigger projects that were financially attractive. But also, to me, and going back to my history, I never really worked for a developer. I mean, I learned everything I knew about development just you know from a bootstrap perspective. So for me, it's a great opportunity to you know kind of get inside the conference room of larger developers and. Learn a lot of the things that other people probably learned just from either growing up in the family business or working as junior people developers. I didn't have none of that. So to me, it was a secondary benefit. You learned a lot from uh, that. Learning a lot, getting mentorship, seeing understanding how it worked. And also making relationships inside of government and with capital partners that were helpful. Well,
0: working with Lowe and with Heinz are mm-hmm. pretty strong companies to pretty strong with.
2: companies. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had the other ones. I mean Archstone was, you know, great apartment building. And then other things like, you know, we use very, in my early work, and we have we use, we use architects only like as, as kind of people who got us permits and things like that. I didn't understand ground-up design and things of went in there. And so working with firms like Gallus or international firms mm-hmm. uh, like Foster & Partners was something I had not been exposed to at all. So mm-hmm. it was fantastic. So my most recent podcast episode was with Bua
0: Boniti. You were uh, clearly a mentor to him. And uh, he looks to you as one of his biggest influences. He saw that you were primarily a for-sale residential developer and wanted to convince you that rental housing could work, at least in one project you were considering at the time. Mm-hmm. Did your firm evolve from a for-sale housing to a broader spectrum, including rental housing, commercial, mixed-use projects over time? Or was there a broader
2: strategy? Uh, I think it was over time. And I do credit Boo for really being a... Uh, driving force of one of our, our first iTech project at 4100 Georgia. Remember him and Gina Merritt, who's another black woman developer, were both at my firm at the time. And again, you know, we'd been doing, you know, for sale, for sale, for sale. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I found this parcel and I said, hmm, you know, maybe it's time to diversify both for business reasons and for mission-driven reasons and maybe do affordable housing care. And I, I remember Gina Said, oh well we can do a light tech deal. And I was like, well, what's that? And she said, Oh, don't, you know, don't worry, you know, do all. And and Boo was there at the same time. And I believe, I don't want to speak for Bua, but I think that he sort of learned that business mm-hmm. from Gina. And they both did a great job in getting us the funding and getting everything set up. Yep. And that so it was really a transition point for for my firm. And then we started to go more and more in that direction. I think it was a transition point for Brua before he was there for a while, then got, went to work with Dempad and launched his firm. So yeah. a lot of stuff happened during yeah, that, that exactly. time frame of, I guess that was around 2006 or so.
0: You know, it's interesting. I Earlier, I interviewed Matty Hoffman. And mm-hmm. Matty basically started the same way you did. Mm-hmm. He, he started buying buildings and just renovating himself, mm-hmm. then eventually got into the condo business. Mm-hmm. And then through partnerships primarily, he got into the into the rental Mm-hmm. business because people would come to him with a project, this probably makes more sense to do mixed use with both for sale and for rent projects. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to hear, to see the, mm-hmm. the analogy there. And mm-hmm. so you learning this affordable housing business
2: mm-hmm. through that. Now, did I mind to tell you that when I was at AWC that we selected his firm for the work? Among seventeen other competitors, and so well, he had a lot of intersection there as well. Well, unfortunately, his partner blew up on him, mm-hmm. and so he went through a lot. On that. He went through a lot. No, I remember he told me one time. He said, "You know, basically, I really grew my net worth through you know the first few years leading up to the crash and all this, and basically, I, I put it all on the table for the war." And uh, he said it was tough, but I mean, that's that's real estate. I mean, you you do gamble and you do. But he had a lot of strength, but he had a real vision. His, his team, his original team, by far had sort of the most creativity, the most energy, the most everything around it. And so it was an easy pick. And yeah, he went through some tough time. I mean, both his partner imploding both for legal and reasons, going through the down business cycle, going through the dissolution of AWC, which was the agency yeah. that picked them in... You know, I give him all the credit in the world. He persevered uh, because he had a vision, and you know, now look at that place, and now look at what his business has gone on to. So, yeah, sometimes well, you you know, you put it on the table, and hopefully, you, you win more hands than you lose. So, why did the the AWC dissolve at the time? And I, you you were running at the time, right. so what happened? So, I think a couple of things happened. Well, the main thing that happened was the election of Adrian Penty and both. Anacostia Waterfront Corporation and the NCRC were independent agencies they were set up to create more speed and more independence from government and when Mayor Fenty came he decided he wanted that control and we you know and first I mean as soon as he as soon as he won the primary it was was going to be you know going to be the next mayor you know I went to him and said hey you know if I'm not your guy, let me know and I'll step aside and you know get you someone else to run this place so I thought both AWC and NTRC were valuable entities and that they had a procurement and disposition authority that you know was a, was a lot more independent and so I I sort of thought his best route would have been would have been to put his own team at AwC and NTRC use that but he decided no he wanted them to dissolve and everything collapsed into Demphead. into Demphead. And that was his decision. And it was, I'd had enough taste of government at that point. So it worked <laughs> out really well for me. <laughs>
0: so I think Eric Price then took over pretty much at that point, right? With all that? Was Eric a deputy married at that point? I believe so, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So then they just rolled it back in. And then so you went back to here, you know, okay. back to NDC. Yes. Okay. So wow. take,
2: it's like what they say home is where they. They have to take you when you come back. <laughs> so
0: when that was going on, I mean, how did you split your time? I mean, how did you work that out? I mean, done?
2: I was full time at AWC. I had at the time two senior people here that, you know, allowed to sort of take over the day to day. I met with them about two hours every week. That was it. Really? We sort of coordinated what's doing and they kept things. So you were like hands going, off pretty, pretty much. Yes, I was. I thought it was my obligation to, you know, I was going to do public service and do that. I mean, it was all above board. They knew of my ownership. They understood it. We we were and luckily it was very clear it would have been difficult somewhere else. But because AWC had a defined geographic area, literally it was like a a line along the map was like, I wouldn't do business there. And so it worked out fine. Mm -hmm. So, were you still in the condo business at that point, or were you an in income income producing? We were both. Yeah. We had condo projects. We had a light tech project going on, and we had our joint venture participation in these larger projects. So it was it was a, it was mixed. We were sort of in the early phases of transitioning to uh, where we are now. So we were still mm-hmm. doing condos, but our affordable housing practice was starting to grow, and we had so we had joint ventures with the, the larger projects. Mm-hmm. So.
0: It's interesting. So when you came back, did you have a new spirit about what you wanted I to did. do? I did.
2: I did. It was really, it was a sabbatical. As I said, I, I kind yep. of, uh-huh. you know, the day-to-day had wasn't as fun as when I first started. Sure. Um, and so, you know, it's like a lot of things. You, you don't realize what you have until you miss it. And so I did come back like very charged. Although I, I actually took some extra time. So when I, I got back, at first I said, no, let me take three or four months off. I'm like, that's not going to work. I can't. The firm doesn't run itself, and so I needed that. And so I, I remember that a really good program. I spent first two months, one day a week working. I spent the next three months, three days a week working. And then and that was sort of started like in late spring. So I did that all through spring and summer. And then when fall came, and went back full time. So it was, it was a great reentry mm-hmm. and a nice opportunity. Did you pivot your company strategy at that point, or
0: was it pretty much the same as it was before?
2: It was pretty much the same. And also the crash came. Right. And so it was more, you know, let's hold on and you know, yeah. let's see what's going on. And yeah. and I, and I don't know if you recall, but that was like a scary crash. I mean, i have been through a real estate slump before, so I kinda of understood that. But this sort of wholesale collapse of the economy was pretty scary. and so I think it was not so much it was it wasn't a realm of strategy, it was a realm of like tactics, like you know, how do we you know, get through this.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So talk about some of your most memorable projects over your 24 year tenure as a developer in Washington. Perhaps do it chronologically, Mm -hmm. demonstrating the evolution of your thinking as an investor and developer. Mm -hmm. If you can weave a thread of continuity in the story, I'd appreciate
2: it. So I don't know if there's a thread of continuity other than me. I mean, we started out doing very small projects, three or four unit buildings, and then Next year we're doing like 10 unit buildings, 20 unit buildings. Was billings. there a neighborhood focus or were you? Yeah, so of... as already was Columbia Heights was where okay. we first started mm-hmm. and Columbia Heights was was really a transitioning neighborhood back in you know ninety nine, two thousand. It was still considered kind of risky. And so a number of projects there including that 18 unit building i talked to you about so mm-hmm. that building was kind of like our first step up into something i guess double digits if you will a building here across the street lamont street lofts 38 units old warehouse building one of the true loft buildings in dc i considered that that was 2005 2006 so that was kind of a milestone and. And sort of 38 was like a big number back then. And also... These are all for sale. These are all for sale, adaptive reuse. The the Project 4100 Georgia we talked about earlier. It's our first, you know, really our first sort of large ground up building. Our first affordable housing, formerly with using tech That was delivered in 2009. That was a milestone. Certainly our, our earlier joint ventures in City Vista, City Center were milestones. I think that... You know, since then, we've done. There aren't sort of like the same kind of memorable, kind of milestone, kind of projects, but there was a steady progression and a shift in our in our business philosophy around doing more and more mission driven work as opposed to uh, market rate. And I and I think over the years, it's been a progression that i didn't really see at the time but it was off it was not just a business progression but a personal progression particularly as my older children now 26 and 23 sort of into their own and i sort of started seeing the world more from their eyes and, and their eyes are are you know much less capitalist and much more you know, societal than mine i think sort of seeing my business and my work from their eyes and understanding that I wanted to do more mission driven and, and appreciating mm-hmm. that. So it's been a transition, you know, since then to the point where we really just made a recent decision that 100% of our work will be mission driven. So in the area wow. of affordable housing, both rental and for sale of mission driven commercials. So we just uh, delivered a our, our first new markets tax credit project that, that features all local businesses. And so it's been a, a kind of an evolution for me that it's something that as I kind of go through, you know, who knows how long I'm going to be doing this, but clearly I've been around for a while and what I want to dedicate my talents to and what I want to surround myself in in terms of the energy of people I work with is in the mission-driven space. So it has been an evolution from no mission-driven to 100% mission-driven. So it's a pay-it-forward type of attitude. Exactly. Like. Exactly. And so your children inspired you. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Are they in the business with you? No. So uh, people always ask me, you know, do, <laughs> you know, do your kids want to like take over your business? I said, not only are they not interested in my business, they're not interested in business at all. They they think of business as uh, greedy and boring. So they so my oldest oldest child is she's a journalist, and my middle child Sam is a, a policy analyst for working for a nonprofit. Now, my son's eighteen. He's he's just graduating from high school. Is going to college. So who knows? He he may be, but I, I think you know he's the gap between our ages is, is a bit large for him to come in and kind of take over. You know, so maybe twenty years from now he might be ready, but I'll be you know have to retired by then. I hope
0: it's amazing how these young people can pick up things pretty quickly, really though. Once you get them on board and <laughs> teach them. So so, what is your strategy to raise capital for your investments? You mentioned Litech and. Some of your things. So
2: how do you, have you raised programmatic private equity capital or project-oriented capital for
1: each project?
2: So we historically have raised a project. I mean, we've we dabbled in programmatic and raising some funds and we had some small funds. They didn't, they weren't particularly large. They didn't particularly work that well. Our main mode has been project-by-project project financing. We're starting to look at some programmatics now. We you know, particularly as we move into the mission driven space, we're looking at large capital providers who both for risk return balancing and ESG desire that sure. we're seeing some very large capital players now that are interested in what we're doing. So we're, we're very interested in that. And also particularly, but also certainly on the affordable housing side, there's both money directly from government. There, there's money under government programs like the tax credits, like tax exempt bonds. So those have led us to relationship with sort of very large money-centered mm-hmm. banks. Have you worked with
0: the D.C. government on incentive fighting programs quite a bit? Oh, absolutely, yes, quite a bit, yes. Yeah. So talk about some of the more innovative deals that you've structured, just out of curiosity.
2: So it's interesting because we have, as I said, we just completed our first new markets tax credit, which is... Sure. Extremely complicated, lots of uh, players. Describe the project a little bit. It's a a pair of buildings in the River Terrace neighborhood in Washington, D.C., and this is uh, on Benning Road. Oh, sure. And also we're doing a light tech project nearby. So it really is a a neighborhood kind of focused project. But this one has, uh, for instance, a young black woman who is doing a a food food hall concept with local merchants, another young black woman who uh, is... Creating a maker space for uh, cosmetic manufacturers Very cool. focused around uh, shea butter projects products and also with a link to women in, in ghana who supply and are doing sustainable type of stuff That's there's cool. another there's a couple of health services aspects so it's a collection of, of how small, did you find
0: these tenants i mean did
2: they they come found to us you? yes no they they okay. found i mean we got a lot of publicity around it, it was we did crowdfunding so we talked about sort of capital sources that got us up publicity. It's a fairly you know visible quarter, and so yeah, most of these folks just sort of found us and wanted to be there. I mean, it's very similar to what we did with Twenty One Hundred Georgia for the Yes Organic Market, which was one of the first grocery stores and particularly the first like fresh fruit organic grocery store in the Petworth neighborhood in a generation. And they just found us. They you know Gary Chaw, the owner of Yes, was mm-hmm. you know heard about it and said, "Hey, uh, I love that location. I've always wanted to be there, and I want to put a store there." So. Sometimes you get lucky.
0: That's awesome. So, in reviewing your portfolio and having listened to you speak on a couple of, it sounds as if your primary mission is to, it's not as much to grow a portfolio to earn money for you and your investors, but to improve the neighborhoods. We just talked about that, you mm-hmm. were, where you were developing. Talk about your lens for new business. Is there much of a social mission as a financial mission? You it sounds like it is at this yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. I
2: mean, so we are, are focusing now 100% mission driven we have a test. So in the affordable housing space, you know, we're not just 100% affordable housing, but we look for projects that have, you know, a high threshold. So minimum 30% affordable is is that. In terms of sustainability, it's also one, and again, you know, looking at your children is something that you, really important to that. So we've dedicated that all of our projects will have leading edge, sustainability features, stormwater, green roofs, Solar, we're doing our first project using geothermal energy. So, we have an environmental sustainability lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, a community lens in that we are only going to operate in neighborhoods where you know you're never going to get 100% of people supporting you, but where there's a broad consensus that the project that we're doing is something that people want in the neighborhood. So, that's no interest. So, we're running all of our projects through all these lenses, and if they don't satisfy all of them, then we won't do it. Mm-hmm.
0: Are you pursuing RFPs with the district government?
2: We do selectively. We don't pursue every RFP that comes out. There is a lot of work involved in RFP. And there's, there's depending on it, there's not sort of a high success rate. I mean, some of these will get like 12, 15, oh, yeah. you know, and, and it has to be spread out. So if there's a project that we particularly like that we think we could add value to and it really gets our creative juices flowing, we'll pursue it. But, you mm-hmm. know, we, we do it selectively. Recent articles
0: have suggested the urban growth with intense density may slacken for several reasons, including high real estate values, aging demographics, leading millennials to seek less expensive and more spacious housing, reduced use of transit, et cetera. What's your reaction to these trends?
2: I mean, who knows? It is, I guess, my bottom line, that. I've been around long enough and I've heard, you know, I remember back when like Japan was going to take over the world and, you know, when, you know, Russia was never going to be heard from again and, 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 you know, people were never going to live in the cities again. So I says my initial reaction is that it's hard to predict the future. And so I don't really pay attention to that. I also believe that as a company, you want to be aware of larger environment, but you want to stick to what you're good at and what you want to do. And, you know, the thing about real estate is, is that there's just so many different ways to play it. There's so many different geographic areas and so many different product types, different financing strategies. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a niche, which I believe we do, I think it's better just to stay in that niche and, you know, see what happens. And so that's what we're gonna do. So talk about your company culture and what you want to inspire your, to inspire your your colleagues.
0: When hiring, what characteristics do you see?
2: So we actually, we do have something we call our core values uh, that we do try to hire for. I mean, the, the utmost one is integrity, that we want people to obviously to be honest, to be trustworthy, and to have accountability. And so to, you know, to stand behind what they do and to not blame the other guy or gal, but, you know, stand up so that integrity and accountability is key. Teamwork is a second. We really uh, want and foster a team environment. We want a place where people come in and they help each other, where people have the trust to say, I'm stumped. I'm really struggling with this. Can you give me some ideas? And not where people are sort of hiding things. We value that. We certainly value a what we call a, a get it done, make it happen attitude. Is that real estate, particularly in, in the niche that we're in, is something that requires Creativity and um, the ability to say we're going to get this done, and if you know plan A doesn't work, plan B, C that you've got to keep doing it. So we 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 really value that. Um, so those are key things that we hire for. We think we we have a hardworking environment, but we try to make it fun and we try to let people grow. Hire a lot of people, younger people that grow into the business. So it's a mix of things, but I think we have a good culture and I enjoy the people that I work with and. I would never have it any other way. That's great. So size, I mean, how how big do you want to be? It's the question. You know? Not too big. I mean, what are we right now? We're about a dozen people. You know, maybe can we get like, where we're like 20 people. I mean, I think that's kind of good enough for me. I mean, I think the, the great thing, one of the great things about real estate development is that you can, it's like you your lever. Very few people can have a very big impact on the built environment. And so I don't foresee in in this company error being so big that I didn't personally know everybody that was here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I guess the other question on size is, is how many deals do you think you can pursue at any one time? Mm-hmm. And do you balance between buying just for investment or are you purely looking now at development deals where you're re- you're going to be doing some construction activity on site?
2: Right. No, it's much more the latter. I mean, we're developers. We're, we're not... Asset managers, our passion in my, going back to how I got into this, my passion is about creating. So, taking something, a piece of dirt, a right. burned out building, and turning it into something completely different. That's our passion. So, we're developers, um, and that's what we do, and that's what we think our talent is. Line. You don't want to necessarily build up a portfolio of many assets that you're in. Managing
0: not
1: not in
2: a as a goal in and of itself. I mean, all of the tech projects that we've done, we just delivered our fifth one. We're breaking ground our sixth one in, in the third quarter. Those we've kept, you know, we built them. We, we built them for the long haul. We're going to keep them. But no, we're not in it just to, you know, buy a bunch of assets and a massive portfolio with that as a goal.
0: Okay. What person or people that stood out to you as inspirations, and why?
2: That's there's so many. I mean, people ask me, particularly young people, should I get a mentor, and, and they said, "Did you have?" It? And I never really had like a mentor, but I've had many people along the way who have I've learned from, and even I've learned from people who were younger and, and new in the business. So can't you know other you know than my parents particularly my mom you know for most of my life raised me as a single mother she was the number one inspiration in my life my sister is a great inspiration my sister uh, is an extremely talented individual who never really cared about making money so she's been in public service her whole life but she's someone who could have been in the private sector making millions and it's like it was something that you know never occurred she She's been helping children and families, and she's been in the public sector pretty much her whole life. And it's done great she research. works for the federal
1: government? Or she's what? working
2: for D.C. now. She runs a D.C. program. Oh, really? Yes. Uh-huh. Your sister? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's
0: interesting. So you may have listened to my past uh, podcast episodes with John Green and Joe Carroll. who are fellow Harvard mm-hmm. Business School grads. Where we discussed the recent race, racial incidences that happened in the last couple of years during mm-hmm. the pandemic and the social aftermath. I'm curious if you have a perspective on this as a leader in
2: the Black community. Well, first of all, I don't really know if I'm, I'm going to crown myself a leader in the Black community, but from the, my perspective, it has fueled my passion to be a role model, to help younger Black developers, and to be a force for creating housing opportunities in neighborhoods that that you know are predominantly black and where you know in the past they've been displaced and so I think it is it is really you know not created something new that I didn't know about before but really elevated what I felt was my personal responsibility to make a positive contribution to black community in, in those ways of
3: mentorship
2: and, and community partnership and so it's just made it like a lot more important to me. I mean my big issue continues to be the you know the school to prison pipeline and how many of our young black people never even got the kind of chances that I got and are just, you know, their lives are wasted, they're, you know, impacted by the criminal justice system and, you know, I really want to make more of an impact in that area. Well, that's my next question. Looking at the education
0: in urban areas, mm-hmm. in your opinion, how should our education system help to build self-confidence among minority students to pursue opportunities?
2: I mean, that, that's above my pay grade or maybe out of my expertise. I mean, the impact I want to make, one of the things I've done, we haven't talked about this interview, I've started this new company called Platform, which will yeah, be in, in the instruction it. space. It, yeah. It's really a focus, and that's a whole other podcast. It's really a focus <laughs> on everything underground in the business. I think that there's just been a tremendous pain point, and all developers see it, of how long it takes you to you know, dig down Lay your foundation, come back up to grade. And I just my my sincere, you know, belief that there's a better way to do it, and we're focused on doing that. So that's the business model. We can talk about that more, but really from a social standpoint, I see that as an avenue. You know, I talked about NDC having a small workforce. Platform's is gonna have a huge workforce, it's gonna have hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And I see that that is a way that I can directly impact the go. lives of folks in neighborhoods yeah. and create career paths where. You know, we can create, you know, $70,000, $80,000, 100000 careers for people who maybe don't have that advanced education, but who are smart and want to work hard and who are committed to doing that. So I'm excited about that in, in terms of, of using my talents to, to help that community.
0: Well, if you don't mind, uh, I'd love to get into that just a little bit. I mean, tell me a little bit what the origin of the thought process for that. Mm-hmm. You're not an engineer, I don't think. No. So, where did you come up with this? Did you have some friends that influenced you, or did, what where did you get
2: up this ideas? So, I really, no, to be honest, I really came from myself. I mean, I've been staring into holes, um, <laughs> you know, for the last thirty <laughs> years, and um, you know, and and there's an old saying, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. You know, development is that you know it takes you forever to get out of the hole. Once you get out of the hole, then things start happening. Of course, and I was always like. Well, why is it taking so long to get out of the hole? deliberately and yeah, Or other thing. I mean, just things that would just drive to the wall. Like, like, and that's when I was just talking to a developer of just today. I mean, here we are, you know, 2022, and he was, he was telling me, he said, well, we run into these big cost runs in our project because once we started excavating, we found, you know, three old oil tanks. And I was like, well, they can find like buried in the Egyptian sand, pyramids that were, you know, thousands of years old, and yet you can't find the oil tank until you start digging. I mean, so there were all these things where I saw where the, there was all this energy and money and, and really smart people looking at ways to improve the way we build buildings, but it's all above ground. So you got modular, you've got companies like Blueprint Robotics, you've got all these types of, of property technology firms focus on the vertical. And yet, when I would talk to them, I'd say, well, what do you do about the underground portion? Oh, well, you know, we just do it the same way we always do. We hire local contractors. So, so that's kind of a drag because that's, if you really look at it, about 25% of the cost of the building is underground. And in some schedules, if it's more complex, 40% of the schedule time is based on underground. So I said, if we can reduce that cost, if we could shrink that schedule, and we really don't need new techniques to do. We just need a focus on it. We need a one-stop shop so that so that you can stop the finger pointing, can lower your wrist, you can decrease your headaches as a developer, and that we can certainly do it better. We could do it, we could really change the industry. And I was psyched up about doing that. I just saw it as a as a great challenge, a great opportunity. And something that I was ready for. Was there a
0: technological you know, breakthrough that you saw? that? There's that
2: none yet. There's none yet. I mean, we as, you know, got a, our goal is to be the leading player of that. And so we, we believe that there are tech, technologies we can use, particularly in robotics and on the software side to do it. But right now it's just about, and I compare it to Uber, whereas Uber didn't invite, invent the car. Uber didn't invent the passenger. Uber didn't invent cell phone but they saw different ways to put all those things together where you had a whole new way of doing business essentially with the same components and so we're doing we do that as well we're using essentially the same means and methods a little bit bigger but we're just combining that into one package a one source solution and we're applying all of our energy and all of our thought to it so when you're talking about this i think of two people i think of elon musk and i
1: think of you know who
0: talks about first principles Mm -hmm. and he goes back to the roots of how things, you know, you take each little component. I mean, he's, he's doing, you know, obviously he did the Tesla with that. And then he Mm -hmm. did this boring company. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that. uh, The boring company Uh is the, you know, the do subway in Mm -hmm. in, in Los Angeles with this very interesting structure. Mm -hmm. And he just said, you know, why can't you do that? Keeps asking that question. It sounds like that's the same thought process you
2: had in some respects. No, it really is. I mean, you look at the way something is done, and you talk to people and say, "Why well, don't you do it differently?" And you realize, particularly in that area, construction is very resistant to change, and the underground proportion is even more resistant to change. And so, if you went, if you go back in time, we went to a job site, you know, eighty years ago, machines might be a little fancier, and the the workers might be, you know, dressed a little nowadays but essentially it's the same process and so the spirit and exactly what you said you've got to sort of start from a first principle of you know why can't you do it differently and let's try and so we're going to try so you haven't discovered anything
0: unique technologically yet so if you have some if you part of your team for this new company somebody that's you know actively in software development and, and also in the Technological research. Not at and this point. I mean, we're
2: focusing on blocking and tackling right now. Like geotechnical experts that you're working with right now. We or? are right now, you know, have strategic relations with some, but no. The, the The game plan is they will be inside the company, uh-huh. and that you'll be able to come to us with a site, and we will evaluate it for you. We will price it for you. We will guarantee our price. We won't come back and say, "Oh, the geotech missed something," because we will be the geotech. Right. And so I think that'll be a tremendous value add to the customer just to understand that you're not going to have these different people you're hiring who are blaming each other for why things aren't going well. One project we haven't talked about that makes me think
0: that it would be a very interesting underground survey is St. Elizabeth's Hospital, mm-hmm. <laughs> which probably is one of the most oldest historic structures in all of D.C. And the other one, of course, is the McMillan Reservoir. Mm-hmm which has historic
2: underground facilities yes. in it, which mm-hmm. is yes. three i And unique. finally getting underway. I, drove by, <laughs> I drove, drove by there the other day, and I saw finally dirt is moving. <laughs> yes. So you're involved, I believe, in St. Elizabeth's. Well, not the, with the, the hospital. Our NDC has uh, Parcel 13, which is right near the sports arena, and we're building a, a large mixed-use, mixed-income project. So if you
0: were to take this new business and, and sell to whoever's doing, I think it's, what's the name of the group that's doing the big part of the, the hospital, the old hospital? I'm not sure of it. But, but if you go to them and say, we, we'd like to assess this, would it be interesting
2: to see what was under that? Under oh, the of course, no, I find passing. fascinating. I mean, and again, <laughs> talking about the root principles, I mean, the thing that got me into the business back when I was a young guy was the actual process of building. And so even the people I've you know, development is finance, is design and all. I think of myself as a builder. And I love building. And so mm-hmm. that would be, and I love history too. So combining those two and, and kind of. Especially you know, that part of that. the city where yeah. you grew up. Exactly. No, I, I, you're right. That'd be a lot of fun. Would be very interesting. It seems to me. So what are your life priorities among family work? And As you get older, they they become much more important. I mean, it's it's a different phase of life. I mean, when you have young kids, it, it's all engrossed. I have three kids. It's all engrossed. and takes all your time. As they get older, you relate to them in different ways. You're still a parent, but it's less sort of minute by minute and,
1: and more mm-hmm.
2: so. And now that they're, at least my two oldest are, are young adults, I relate to them in a different way and that's great. And so I I enjoy my time with them. One's in New York and one's local. So I enjoy my time. And I've enjoyed with my son who is in his last year of high school and, and really he's going off to college next fall. So I've really... You know, holding on to that and, <laughs> and, and looking forward to the empty nest, but also cherishing the minutes I have them, and so yeah. that's important. And then, you know, going outside my family as NDC has, you know, prospered and 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 been successful, and and we have a, a group here that leadership, and I can sort of spend less day to day day to day time here, and also on a new company which is serving. I mentioned doing a lot of different things, but also as I've built my personal wealth to the point where I'm satisfied. I don't need to be Elon Musk and I'm happy with what I got. I can turn more of my energy and attention to, you know, helping the world out and, and doing a little bit to make things better. And so I'm really have been very blessed with the the time and talent to do that. And I want to do more of it. What any specific
0: Nonprofits that you're involved in. What's, your, what's your I'm
2: involved in a few. I'm involved with the. I've been involved for a long time with the the Barker Adoption Foundation. I'm the chairman of the board, and that's been an interesting shift because adoption has changed much more from sort of traditional models that that in the past where you know you get this you know young woman who can't you know care for a baby and adopted by kind of typically wealthier people. To much more, and and I've been very proud to be part of this change at Barker, is to a much more child-centric approach where we we work with blended families, where we work much more with children with special needs that that really require a lot of help. We work much more with the foster care system to, you know, work with children, not just from the infant stage, but all the way up to teen and into early adulthood. So I'm very involved and very proud of my association with Barker. I'm also on the board of the uh, enterprise community development, which is oh, a development sure. arm enterprise, and you know, directly there from a total nonprofit point of view, helping their work in expanding affordable housing and, and not just the housing but all the the wraparound services that go with it. So those are those are sort of the two most active things I do in the nonprofit. Well, I've been on different boards from time to time, I'm saying I work with studio theater, I was on their board for a while with the other ones. And and uh, so I just sort of found that, that sort of two kind of main focuses at the time outside of my work is kind of the most that I can do. So I've been on some things and, and I've been there for a while and hopefully made a contribution and then I've
1: moved on. Mm-hmm.
0: So with enterprise, if you, I assume you somewhat are conflicted if you were to
2: go to them for any kind of financing. So you're kind of well actually we do. And and it's all about enterprise is a key financial partner. The the board number one in the enterprise community development is development arms. So I'm not directly mm-hmm. looking at obviously like approving like my own deals, but with the larger enterprise organization, they've been a key financial partner in several oh. projects and that okay. relationship is growing. So have you done tax credits with them? We and, have, yes. Yeah.
0: That's because I know that's a big part of their business. Mm-hmm. So what were your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events in your
2: career? Oh boy, that that's a good one. I mean, I think the the win certainly. There have just been many projects, and I mentioned some of them earlier, where you really wanted that project. It just felt right. It just felt like location was right, the type of structure was right, the time was right, and you really wanted those. And you, you got close to not getting them, and you finally got them. I think. A lot of wins like that. I think there were a lot of losses. I think there were, you talk about RFPs or RFPs that we went out after that. We were sure we went to win. We just thought that they were right and we had the right proposal and it was right and and they picked someone else. And so I think that was tough. There have been some joint ventures I've been in that have gone south, not sort of blaming the other people, but situations situation where interests diverge, where at the beginning your interests are completely aligned and time yep. is gone. and. And some of those have been painful. So I've lost, you know, I've lost that. I've had, not really losses because they've gone on, but you look like people like, you know, Brewer, Gina, or other people, Angel Bruner is another example, running EB 5 I had some really, people who've gone on to great success who worked here. And I, I wish I had found a way to kind of keep them here and the understand energy sure. inside here. But they, yeah. they were like me. They wanted their own thing yeah. and they've gone on. So I, I salute them, but like I said, I wish I had residuals in them and just like a little piece of what they're doing would be a really nice return or on an
0: investment. What you what another thing you mentioned earlier is you found out what you didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And to me that often is a big win. Yes. Because you know, you can you can continue in life to do things that you realize, oh I gotta put bread on the table, so I gotta just mm-hmm. keep doing this. Mm-hmm. But you said no right.
2: and you decided to pivot. Mm-hmm. That's to some extent a big win. That's true, it is what a big win, about... but it's not for everybody. I mean, people who are familiar with the business and understand kind of the the, the risks that you get in and, and the the stress. I'm no. never oh, right. like, you know, there's no way I wouldn't want that. So You know, nothing, you know, everything's a two-way street and there are trade-offs, but I I think I made the right one for me. Any big surprises in your career?
0: Things that just kind of hit you like out of left field that just kind of
2: surprised you? I think like any business, it's really the people that both make it and break it. And so I've been surprised on the upside of of people that originally I thought really, you know, weren't capable of nearly the kind of things they've been capable of. And Mm -hmm. so have started out very young and green and just done amazing things. And then I've been surprised on the downside by people that I thought were totally, you know, either had the talent or totally were aligned and completely weren't. And that was, you know, that was disappointing. So I think I've had, you know, businesses almost all about relationships and, and I've had some great ones and I've had some ones that weren't so great. So what advice would you give your 25 year old self today? 20 plus, so what was that? It's Super going to, to sound like corny and trite, but it, it's like, enjoy the journey every day. And just, you know, don't, look you know, you have to plan ahead. You're not going to really get anywhere if you're living your day to day. But I think a lot of folks, and I was like that too, was just always looking ahead to the next thing. And like, you know, once I achieve this, then I'm going to have it made. And once I do this, I'm going to be happy. and once I to do that and, and just not realizing that what's the old song, like these are the good old days you know, mm-hmm. that, that you're, you're living it right now and that you're in the adventure right now. And that you are, you know, enjoying your kid's life and the top right now. And just savoring more of that and just savor every step of the way. And so if you're looking uh, at your son right now, and he's asking, so dad, what, how should I, I don't have you? to advise myself, son. my son, if I ever come back and <laughs> be I want to come back as my son. No, he's, He's, uh, he's got everything. He's, he's he's a sports star. He's smart. He's artistic. He's he's good looking. He's got lots of good friends. He, he seeks nor needs no advice from me right now. He will eventually. He will. He might. He eventually. will eventually.
0: I'm pretty sure. So if you could post a statement on a billboard in the Capitol Beltway yes.
2: for millions to see, what would it say, Adrian? Oh, geez. That's a tough one. I don't know. Just hug everybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's cool. Well, thank you
0: very much for your time, Adrian. I really appreciate it. This has been a very interesting conversation. And I appreciate it. Well good. Thank you, John. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a great one. So we just listened to Adrian Washington, who was the founder of uh, Neighborhood Development Company. In Washington, a now a socially focused real estate developer, but his career evolved over time from you know coming out of uh, Stanford and Harvard Business School into management consulting and IBM sales and all these things. And he just changed his whole tune. And when he came back to Washington, knowing that he wanted to be home, and started renovating homes for a living before he got to build his company and joining, of course, NHP and then learning about the income producing business and all that and then renovating homes on his own. So he changed his tune quite a bit over time. And it was interesting. So as I usually do, I'm bringing on my cohort here,
3: Colin Madden. Colin, welcome. Hey, John. Happy to be here again. thought this was another interesting and entertaining (sighs) podcast. And yeah, I just thought... Thinking back and just briefly talking with you, it's, it's pretty incredible the educational path he had. I think it's basically best in class all around. So he went Stanford, Harvard MBA, a boutique like McKinsey, and then through the IBM sales program, which I can't really think of a, a greater path than that to get like a well-rounded, you know, polishing of all of the facets of business. But it is interesting that he had all the blue chip top tier Path and then ended up getting into real estate, kind of through the back door and and kind of fixing up things himself and you know starting small small resi deals and and building it from there. So it, it I got a sense that he's a bit of a maverick and likes to do things himself and sees problems and and then just fixes them himself and then he's been able to build a career on that and kind of get the hunch that that's what he's been thinking about with his new startup. He he briefly talked about. He's probably been looking at holes his entire life. And it's, it's probably been frustrating him why it takes so long to get out of the hole in a development project. And now it seems like he's going to focus on that. So I just thought, you know, it was interesting to, to see the trajectory of his career and now it's, it's, he's still, you know, growing with it and, and bringing it forward to a, a startup that focus on focuses on construction efficiency. So what did you think about kind of that whole encompassing?
0: Well. It's interesting, he, you know, comes from, he grew up in in east of the river in Anacostia in, in an era that Washington, D.C. was a different place than it is today, certainly. Very divided and even more so then. And during the riots, he was actually growing up as a kid, you know, in 1960s. In so that's <coughs> tough time for uh, a Black kid growing up in D.C., but his mother was a librarian, and mm-hmm. he went to the he went to the library after school as a latchkey kid. And she piled books on him, and he got really interested in reading. And so that was a real differentiator with he and his, obviously, it's probably his friends. We didn't talk about his social life as a child, but uh, he also said that his older brother inspired entrepreneurially because he had a paper route. And he joined his older brother in the paper route. So he learned entrepreneurship mm-hmm. from his older brother and reading from his mother. So, mm-hmm. what that tells me is that that set him apart from almost every other kid his age growing up in Washington, D.C., I would mm-hmm. think. Yeah. So, he got those two found foundation tools that led him to the uh, charters or private school down in Maryland that he went to for high school and then on to. Stanford, which Mm -hmm. is pretty amazing for somebody coming out of that environment, I think. So, and then he goes goes to IBM, and that wasn't satisfactory to him. And he then goes back, comes back to the East Coast, goes to Harvard Business School. I mean, he had the world was his oyster to some extent as far Mm -hmm. as opportunity. I mean, not. I mean, you could, as I said, you could probably count on one hand the number of uh, black kids his age that had the opportunities he had at that time. Phenomenal, but he just decided, you know, I don't like these things that these careers that are. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my own thing. So he mm-hmm. started renovating houses in Washington. He bought a home. He, he lived in the Back Bay in Boston. And he saw the architecture there, and he said, "Hey." I want to find a place like that in Washington where my home is. So he we went to LaDroide Park, which is a mm-hmm. fascinating historical subdivision. At the time when it was built, it was a suburb of Washington, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. If you go to the Font plan of Washington, D.C., Florida Avenue was boundary, as he talked about, was boundary road. Because that was the edge of the District of Columbia when in the Font plan.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Which... Until recently, I didn't realize that until so I was doing a little more research. And so all the development north of Florida Avenue, along Connecticut Avenue, and, and then east of that was outside the district line at the time when it was first built. So it's a suburb. LaDroid Park was all these Victorian homes, was built in the late 1800s. And so he bought an old house and renovated it and then looked at other homes <clears throat> Along the Georgia Avenue corridor, which is where he's kind of focused on his, much of his career, and just buying homes and fixing them up, but he did that I guess for three or four years before joining NHP because he was struggling. He's not making mm-hmm. enough money. So his orientation, the other thing I'll say is his orientation was very make money and survive
1: mm-hmm.
0: initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, walking away from a corporate career and management consulting. But then he realized, uh, after having children over time, that it was more important to be socially conscious. Mm-hmm. And that was a big pivot. And that really only happened probably in the last 10 years or so for him.
3: Right. So it's interesting. Yeah. I think you you mentioned this on the podcast, which I thought was a good point, where he found out that he knew what he didn't want to do. And I think that's an that's important right. thing to, to keep in your mind in, in any career and I feel like one exercise you can do is like your boss's boss's boss. If you don't want to be him or in, in your current job, then maybe it's not the right job for you. That's kind of what I always I've always used. So if you're trying to figure out what you want to do in your career and you look all the way down the line of like if best case scenario occurred at this at this job, would I be happy? And it seems like he did a similar exercise and and the answer is no. So he he kind of jumped to different opportunities. So yeah, I think it's important to to know what you don't want to do earlier in life than, uh, than later. Also,
0: he, in 2007, he was listening, he, as he say, he
3: cited this,
0: he was listening on the radio with his wife, hearing about Andy Altman, who at the time was the, the founder of the Anacostria Waterfront Commission, mm-hmm. had just resigned and stepped out, and they were looking for a new person for that. He had his career already built, his company was going well and humming along. And, he said to his wife, he said, you know, maybe I should apply for that. That might, sounds interesting. I -hmm. can learn something. So he stepped away from his, you know, more or less as he called it a sabbatical for three years doing that Mm -hmm. uh, to run the Anacostria waterfront uh, commission, which was a big, big uh, effort here in Washington in the mid two thousands, you know, uh, clean up the river and, You know, that was before the ballpark was built and uh, that whole neighborhood, the Navy Yard deal with Forest City and all that was inspired by that. And then, of course, he also talked about Marty Hoffman's securing the wharf and negotiating that. He was involved Mm -hmm. in that process. So he got a broad picture of the city and also was helping. He had a unique background because he had both the business experience and real estate development experience. And he grew up in Anacostia, so he Mm -hmm. understood the issues of Mm -hmm. some of the social problems as well as, you know, the environmental issues, too, which was another part of it that they were dealing with. I mean, the Anacostia River was a mess. It's still not fully cleaned up yet, but it's certainly a lot better than it was. Um, So and then all the now new bridge crossings and parks going across the river and now they're. They're probably fifty percent of what their goals were originally. Maybe Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot more to do. Certainly on the east side of the river. But he kicked it off, and you know, after Altman left and didn't want to do his own thing, Mm -hmm. but then they dissolved it when he was there, and that was because Mayor Fenty came in and decided to bring the entity uh, in, and -hmm. ironically, that entity Demped. Which it's now called. The head of that group, I'll be interviewing for a future podcast event as well. His name is John Chikio He'll be a future podcast guest. So, uh, so I'd like we'll to get talk. The to full picture. Yeah. yeah, so I'd like to talk to him about the history of DEMPED. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Price took over at that time, as I recall. He was the deputy mayor for Eric for uh, Adrian Fenty. Uh, so Adrian let Adrian go. <laughs> so, yeah, but, you know, Adrian Washington didn't think that was, too, you know, he had a company to go back to. And yeah, he said it was time. It was a good time to go back. And, but it was a struggle because that was the global financial crisis. So he did say there was he was struggling to survive. So it was good that he get that back to be able to keep his company yeah. going. Right. Refocus. Uh, exactly. Which he had to do. And he went through it, came through it okay. One thing I will say about the pandemic, and I asked him right up front about it. He said, you know, there are both pluses and minuses to the pandemic for their company. And mm-hmm. I think that's really where what accentuated his social focus, uh, mm. the, the impact of the pandemic. He thought he'd have problems with collections. Turned out it was better than he expected. Right. And uh, he kept his occupancy high. and he said his, his commercial portfolio has been the one that struggled and that's indicative of what everybody else has said that we've talked to mm-hmm. the commercial tenants have struggled more than the residential ones
3: so that, so interesting yeah <clears throat> And he kept his uh, his cards a little close to his chest on his his new startup, but he also mentioned it could take another podcast, so I'd be interested if you two could you know join up again to to just discuss that startup because I think well, I think construction efficiency is is a topic that I know little about, but I'm super interested in. There's this great blog called Construction Physics by this guy named Brian Potter. I don't know if adrian has has found it, but it might be something he's interested in, but he does really deep dives into construction efficiency and why it is so hard to innovate in construction. So. Well,
0: there's a lot of activity above ground
3: mm-hmm.
0: in, in, in innovation. Mm-hmm. His point is there isn't enough underground, which he thinks can sometimes reach 40% of the project costs. Yeah. So that's where he's aiming. But what I was trying to probe is what innovations has he uncovered or has, does he is he aware of and may, as you suggested, he might be keeping it close to the vest, that he didn't want to, he's not quite at the point where he can talk about them, some things he's doing, because it seems to me to, to go to the effort of starting a company uh, to focus on underground activity, there needs to be a leading idea that he's he's coming out with, you know, is attracting and would attract interest. Mm-hmm. I mean from a conceptual standpoint it's great and my question to you on that that blog that that physics blog that you talked about does that deal with underground activities and if it does what what ideas have come out of that if you know of any just out of curiosity not
3: that I've seen specifically on underground it's more of like a high level look at construction and why it is so hard to to innovate and it's it's because the timelines and different subcontractors are so intertwined that one delay on in, in one sub will be a domino effect all the way down the line of the entire project so well innovating. inverting
0: inverting that it could be the other way around too if you accelerate a process mm-hmm. quicker yeah. than right. what was expected it could it could be a domino effect the other way to improve but yeah it's, it's he he
3: kind of like plots all of the Navy construction projects in I don't know the past 50 years I'm just kind of making that year frame up and then shows like where cost overruns came in and and where the average over over uh, run happened and he's like he just breaks down if you innovate in one area and it causes a delay it's a chain reaction and that's why yeah. when you're bidding out jobs it's 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 so hard to to win a job on an unproven, process so it's 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 just hard to innovate because it's hard to get that job to take on that risk that could you know destroy an entire budget because because one innovative practice didn't actually end up working so well it,
0: it could have worked but sometimes as you as you suggested education is important and people mm-hmm. may not quite understand what the impact is mm-hmm. until it actually happens or after the fact it's too late to To actually and then it caused delays because people were trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you have to educate people ahead of times before the project starts. And and the problem with that is convincing people that it makes sense to think about that. Right. Because everyone's so trying to get the job done as quickly as they can based on what they know. Yeah. Instead of stopping and saying, wait a minute, that might be a better idea. Let's really think that through before we get going. The problem with projects is that they're all You know, from the big picture is that they all have this, this, uh, you know, timeline that they have to meet, and they Mm -hmm. don't have time for R&D on a project unless it's a a catastrophe. The example I'll bring up is what Monty Hoffman had to do at the wharf under phase two, where they had to insulate the the metro tunnel to avoid the vibration. I don't know if you remember that issue. Mm -hmm. That's an... (laughs) That was forced on them to be innovative at mm-hmm. that moment. You don't see that on a typical job very often, but the scale of that job and the, and the impact of it was so dramatic that they had to do something. That's why it would have been interesting to hear from Adrian. You know, this is what we're considering. These are some ideas that we think can work from a big picture standpoint. We're still working on them. They're not detailed yet, but these are ideas. It would have been nice for him to say that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: but he may not be ready to. And that's, as you suggested, maybe I have a follow-on conversation with him and say, when you're ready yeah. to unveil whatever ideas you guys come up with, let's do that. I have another conversation and maybe I bring on a technological person with you mm-hmm. to explain some of those innovations that you're talking about.
3: Yeah, it is I thought it was especially interesting because he is starting basically at step one once the hole is built. So I think you, it's a good place to innovate if there were to be an innovation in construction because it's not kind of like right in the middle of the job where you already have all your teams on site and are kind of like waiting for one job to be finished before the other team jumps in. So being able to start in the hole, I think, is a is a good opportunity. So interesting to see what tech or software or whatever they may uncover and, you know, see if it works. So, yeah, I mean, underground activity
0: makes or breaks a project Mm -hmm. sometimes. And, you know, when I've talked about parking in the past and, you know, people think that parking is going to evolve to being negligible over time. If we get into AI and, Mm -hmm. uh, and now with remote work, you know, parking may become a thing of the past. So what'll be interesting is innovating what you, how you retrofit existing underground parking. Mm-hmm. And to me, it may be more retrofit than ground, up, you know, initial holes. Yeah. How many new holes are going to be dug for parking? Right. Now, they may dig holes for different purposes in urban settings, but not necessarily, I mean, At least in my experience, parking has been the predominant reason for big holes. So the question is, how are they going to innovate underground activity that's going to create enough value to make it worthwhile? Mm -hmm. So that's another whole different subject. That goes beyond the engineering piece, but to the actual use case. What
3: is the use case of that underground activity? Right. Yeah, I know the new Netflix headquarters building in California. They like built their garage in such a way that it can convert to office if that future ever happens where no one's parking anymore. So haven't seen like a, a great case study on a conversion of a garage. As long
0: as you can figure out how to use ramped floors in an office yeah. use. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> how do you point. get cars to go down uh, more than one level unless you have a ramp? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so if you have a four or five degree slope, in office use, it's a little tricky or maybe a higher slope than that, but ex- I, I can go off on tangents on this. <laughs> yeah. Doug Jamal built a uh, industrial or a, a apartment building in Northeast Washington. It was a renovation of the Hex Warehouse, which had ramped floors in it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It was an unusual setting to being in a, in a unit with a ramped floor. <laughs> <laughs> What'd they do? They just... Just left. They, there. they, yeah. So huh. it was, you know, one side of a unit was maybe a foot higher than the other one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a little strange, but for office use, that'd be even stranger, I think. Mm-hmm. But anyway,
3: so anything else, any other thoughts you have about the podcast? Not, not, not really. Anything you, you, that I missed that you wanted to hit or... Cycle back up. Well, on. let me just uh,
0: do a, a on a wrap up with for it. I think Adrian his whole career evolved considerably from, you know, maybe thinking about doing corporate, you know, sales and and consulting type thing. Kind of pivoting from Stanford to IBM to his MBA to consulting, then renovation of homes to working for nhp and then starting his own company all kind of trying to find his place with regard to the his career per se mm-hmm. but now his pivot is socially and now everything he's doing is mission driven to give back and to provide opportunities for affordable housing and employment opportunities he talked about the food hall that he's doing in northeast on benning road it's a uh, Creative deal with new new uh, new market tax credits. You know, worker maker space, food hall, all for the African American community in that part of the city. So I think he's looking for those kinds of opportunities for future growth for his firm, mm-hmm. and and it's taking from the inspiration that his children have given him, which I think is a really yeah. interesting evolution of his career and his life. Uh, it's, an, it's another example, I'll just say, that why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I really enjoy, at the age I am, which is, I'm in my late 60s, to see how people's careers evolve to, to this point, and mm-hmm. what makes them ch- pivot over time, mm-hmm. and what inspires them to change and, and evolve. So, that's... My takeaway with, with that conversation with Adrian, I thought
3: That kind of reminded me of actually one point he made was when you asked him what was most surprising. And he said the people that make it or break it. And he's he said the people he thought that were going to be super successful sometimes didn't end up um, right. being successful. And I'm curious of what those instances were and if it was just, you know, bad luck or were their inherent uh, qualities of that person that they may have seemed to have it all, but. Uh, so my experience not. tells me, Colin,
0: that everyone has their s- strengths or their strengths, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's just being at the wrong place at the wrong time, mm-hmm. or the wrong place at the right time, or the right place at the wrong time when they didn't succeed because they may leave and then have amazing success somewhere else Mm -hmm. because they were just at the wrong situation at the right, at the wrong time. And some people have amazing success someplace and then go somewhere else and just flounder because they, it just isn't the right setting for them or their responsibilities are wrong for what their, their strengths are or whatever. So to me, one of the biggest important things one needs to do in life is to figure out what really means something to them and what they're good at and combine the two things, the, the, the real passion that you have for something and mm-hmm. understanding your capabilities and what your upside potential is and build on those and just keep the virtuous cycle going. Mm-hmm. If you can do that, uh, not only will you be happy, but everybody that you work with and for will be happy also with your performance and what you contribute to the community. Mm-hmm. I've had to do that in my life. I know yeah. that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So. Anyway. Yeah. Philosophical takeaways here. <laughs> yeah. Good good way to end it all. <laughs> <up. laughs> so on that note, thank you Colin. Appreciate mm-hmm, thank it. You. And listeners, thank you for listening and I will say that in that vein, I have my career counseling Aspects. I try and do one-on-one with people on that. Happy to talk to people about that. And the community that we've built, the Iconic Journey is ongoing and we're trying to grow that of people from 22 to 40. So you and or anybody that you know that might be interested in this, please let me know. Again, my email is john at coenterprises.com. So thank you again for listening and uh, we'll see you in a
1: couple of weeks. Thank you.